Have you ever met someone who would describe themselves as an ex-Christian? You ever had that kind of an encounter? Someone who at one time in their life followed the Lord, but where they are right now, they basically don't want to have anything at all to do with Him. Well, the Bible tells us that such things are possible. Such experiences do exist. Such people are running around out there. But the Bible also insists that that is not a great place to be. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, we read these words in verse 26, For if we sin willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, clearly in Hebrews chapter 10, we see that being an ex-Christian, being a formerly born-again individual, is nowhere that we want to go. When we stop and consider those encounters we have with people like that, it raises some very penetrating questions. Were these people ever saved? Are they saved now, perhaps? Will they ever come back to the Lord. But you know, when I think about the encounters I've had with people who formerly gave a profession of faith in Christ, yet walked with Him no longer, there's a deeper question. Why go there in the first place? What can we as Christians do to make sure that we ourselves don't end up in that position someday? That we ourselves don't fall prey to something we could call the folly of falling away. Well, tonight in our continuing book, uh, study in the, the book of 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to examine this phenomena in an up-close and personal manner. We're going to see three very important insights that I believe can cause us to be forewarned about the causes of Christians falling away from God, or at least those who profess the name of Christ from falling away from the Lord. First, we're going to see tonight the roots of falling away, where that kind of spiritual defection begins in the heart of a person. We're going to see it starts with some pretty core beliefs that people have. And we can search our own hearts to find out if those sort of ideas are running around in our consciousness these days. Secondly, we'll see the results of falling away. What sort of problems does this decision to walk away from Christ bring about within a life? We're going to see that some very easily discernible problems begin to crop up. And finally, we'll see the revelation of falling away. What a total bummer it is to be around the things of God, but not able to enter into them. We're going to see that this phenomena is nothing new. It was alive and kicking during the time of Samuel, and it's alive and kicking in our day. And since forewarned is forearmed, 
we'll learn a thing or two tonight, how to make sure that we are not another accident statistic on the highway to heaven. Let's pray and ask the Lord to open our understanding to His Word. Father, we thank You that Your Word contains for us words of incredible comfort, but also words of caution. Lord, we don't want to have a blind eye to those truths that You would lay upon us, Lord, that perhaps might make us a bit uncomfortable at times. But I thank You, Lord, that if there are areas in our lives that, that, that You desire to unsettle a bit tonight, maybe areas where things need to be turned over a little bit, Lord, You only do these things to heal us, not to condemn, not to frustrate, but to heal I pray that this would be a night where your spirit would be free to search our hearts, to search our minds, that you would reveal to us the inner motivations of the heart, that we would discover that your word truly is sharper than any two-edged sword and able to judge the thoughts and intentions, even of our own hearts. And that, Lord, as you turn the light upon our hearts, I pray that we would see exactly where we stand, exactly where we need to stand if we are going to have a firm and solid foundation in You. A foundation that will not fail us when the going gets tough. Teach us what it means to persevere and so obtain that crown of life which You have promised to all who have loved Your appearing. We thank You for this privilege. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you've been with us in our study of the book of 1 Samuel, you know that our introduction to Samuel is something that is rather stunning on a lot of levels. With this last week, for instance, we saw how Samuel got into the prophet business in the first place. A mere 12 years old, the Lord spoke to him. And so inexperienced was he in spiritual things that when God called him, the first two times God called, he thought that his caretaker, Eli, the high priest, was calling him and asking him for a favor in the middle of the night. The Scripture says he did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord come to him at that point. But boy, let me tell you something. He not only came to know the Lord on that night, but the word of the Lord came to him like gangbusters. The first message that this young man, 12 years old, Samuel, was going to be given in his office as a prophet to the people of Israel would be a message that would hit awfully close to home. He would come to Eli, the fellow who had been like a second father to him, from three years old all the, the way to the time that he stood before God at this point and tell Eli the bad news. The prophecies previously made about Eli's falling asleep at the switch in terms of being the high priest over Israel were going to be fulfilled. That God was going to take the priesthood away from his family and give it to a person who would be faithful in that role. I'm sure if you'd ask Samuel on that day if he thought he would be the person who would step into that role. He would have never thought that that would have been true of him. But that's exactly what God was doing. He was sweeping out the old and bringing in the new. So much so in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 19 we read, So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now we are told that God 
had raised up a prophet indeed for the people of Israel. A notable prophet. A prophet who was speaking with such power, with such faithfulness from the Lord, that literally from the north to the south of Israel, people were abuzz about the fact that God's presence was back. That God was manifesting Himself again to His people. And people were excited about this. Unfortunately, although there was a genuine prophet in Israel, whether Israel would profit from that prophet's presence was another matter entirely. And we see that Israel didn't lay hold of that blessing. As we pick things up in chapter 4 and verse 1, there we read, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at, in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. Now, here we see the setting begin for a series of insights into an entire nation that had fallen away from God. Why had the people of Israel encountered such a devastating defeat, such a costly defeat at the hands of their enemies? Was it was because it was against God's will for the people of Israel to uh, defend themselves against the Philistines? Not at all. As we will see, one of God's pet projects, particularly raising up King David, was to do away with the Philistine threat once and for all. So why was this mission such a raging failure? If it aligned itself with God's purpose, why did they encounter such resistance? One huge reason. They were trying to do the right thing, you understand. But they were trying to do the right thing for the wrong power source. They did not pray before they, go in, they went into battle. They did not consult the Lord. You know, it's significant in this passage, not so much what the people did as much as what they failed to do. And although everybody knew that the Word of the Lord was now coming to the people of God from Samuel and Shiloh, they failed to consult with God before going into battle. And you know, I think that is one of the surest ways to get on the falling away pathway in the Christian life. If you start doing all the right things, but fail to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish them. If you are one of those people who's a real joiner, you know, one of those people that is enthusiastic, one of those people who is inclined to jump in and volunteer first and ask questions later. You know, I have seen so many people who end up walking away from the Lord be able to give me a litany of things that they did in the church. And then they will say things like, but nobody appreciated me in doing any of those things. So finally I got sick of it. Oh, wait a minute. Since when did God call any of us to be appreciated? He called us to be faithful. And the big question that we need to ask if we've been in a situation where we feel like perhaps we've been used in a particular ministry or that you know perhaps we weren't appreciated enough is this. Who are we doing it for? Were we doing it for the approval of men? Or were we doing it in faithfulness to God? Were we doing it because God had called us and given us His Holy Spirit's anointing to do it? Or were we trying to do it in our own strength? I'll tell you what, that is a fatal error that people make. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, consider what this, this prophet of God said about how crucial it is that we put our trust in the Lord and in His guidance and in His direction no matter what we do. Jeremiah chapter 7, 17, I should say, in verse 5 says this, 
Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor cease from yielding fruit. See, the whole difference between someone who shrivels on the vine in the Christian life and someone who thrives is this. Where are you putting your trust? Who are you looking to for your marching orders? Something might look like the right thing to do, but have you really heard from God that that is what He wants you to do? Crucial, crucial decision to make. And the people of Israel just went ahead and led by their own wisdom and knowledge without consulting God, and they paid a price. And let me tell you something. When you get the boot for doing the right thing, confusion tends to reign. And the people of Israel were trying to figure out what went wrong. In verse 3, we see this debate come to the surface. It says, And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Now notice, here is fatal flaw number two on the pathway to falling away. The people of Israel had put their faith not only in their own strength, but they had put their faith in the religious structures of their day without having a relationship with the God who made those structures worth having. They thought that by having the Ark of the Covenant with them, maybe they'd all sat down and watched Raiders of the Lost Ark and said, hey, 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 man, we get that thing going for us. Man, whoop the Nazis, maybe they'll whoop the Philistines. I know that's historically hard to put together, but maybe they had that same attitude. Hey, the Ark, man, that's powerful stuff. After all, you know, when they picked up the Ark and they walked into the Jordan River when we crossed over, boy, that river just backed up and we, they walked across on dry land. That's a powerful thing. And boy, we've heard in the past how when the ark went before us, you know, our, our enemies fled. So, hey, let's, let's use the technique. The ark, the ark will be that which saves us. It will save us. Crucial word there. Not God will save us, but it will save us. Let me tell you something. This is the second quickest way to fall away from the Lord. Is if you put your faith in spiritual things instead of the Lord that makes those things spiritual. You are heading for spiritual disaster. You are heading for a breakdown. And it's such an easy thing to have happen in our lives. Because the spiritual things that we tend to look at instead of the Lord sometimes are all good things, you know. In of themselves, they're just fine. But what we do with them is the big problem. You understand. And this is not a new phenomenon. Consider what happened to the people of Israel concerning an object that commemorated one of the greatest examples of deliverance supernaturally they had seen in their history. You remember the plague of fiery serpents that came upon Israel when they were in the wilderness. They were being struck and people were dying and God gave Moses a very interesting set of instructions. 
He said to fashion a bronze serpent and to put it on a pole. And whoever would look at that bronze serpent when they were struck would be healed and delivered and saved. I mean, so significant was that miracle in the mind of Israel that Jesus Himself said that just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And whoever puts their trust in Him will be saved as well. Very powerful metaphor. Very powerful symbol in the mind of the Jewish people. Almost too powerful. Because we're told in the book of 2 Kings chapter 18 that the people of Israel took a good thing and became so obsessed with it, it actually became a bad thing. 2 Kings chapter 18 describes for us the rule of a king named Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah was a pretty good guy. And in 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 3, we're told, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, that is, the sites of idolatrous worship, and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel had burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Do you understand what the people of Israel had done? They'd kept around this bronze serpent originally to commemorate this great work of God. But people started looking at the symbol instead of the God who made the symbol worth having. So bad did it become that people actually started burning incense and worshiping it instead of the God who made it worth having. Hezekiah was so disgusted by it, he called this thing Nehushtan. It means a worthless piece of brass. Could you imagine how that went over with the priests that were ushering people in to worship this wonderful relic, this wonderful religious souvenir? But it had become a stumbling block. You see, in the same way, the Ark of the Covenant, there was nothing wrong with the Ark at all. But when you put your faith in a religious thing rather than in a relationship with God, you're setting yourself up for trouble. You say, well, you know, that's easy for me. You know, I... Hang around here. I mean, what is there around here that, you know, I would end up bowing down and worshiping? I mean, you know, I'm not going to be worshiping a dove or something like that. Well, be very careful. Because worshiping something, putting your faith and trust in something or someone less than God is subtle business indeed. It's very easy for us, instead of just having this heart of devotion to the Lord, to start putting our faith in a church, our faith in a fellowship. You don't think that's true? Think of how many times you have heard Christians get into the my fellowship's better than your fellowship kind of discussions. You think God's pleased with any of that? No, but we're taking our fellowships and making them our boast, making them our pride. Scripture says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord and nothing and no one else. How about pastors? Sometimes we put our faith in a pastor. Sometimes we will put our faith in a particular program. Sometimes we will put our faith in a religious practice, like even having our quiet time or memorizing our Bibles, and all that's fine. But if those things take the place of God and having a one-on-one love-based relationship with the Lord by faith through grace, you missed it. Your good thing has become Nehushtan. It's become a worthless piece of brass. 
And so the people of Israel were making that same fatal error. They were worshiping the blessing, but they were forgetting about the blesser. They were putting their faith in the ark instead of the Lord whose presence made the ark worth having. And yet there was another mistake they made. A serious defect in their thinking arose and there was no one around to correct it. Look at verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. You see, their faith was not only in their own strength. Their faith was not only in their own structures that they could see with their eyes instead of in the Spirit. Now their faith was invested in false shepherds. Because if you've been with us in our study of the book of 1 Samuel, you know that Hophni and Phinehas were religious hucksters from the get-go. You think TV evangelists in our day are bad. They had nothing on these two. And because these guys were in the ministry for what they could get out of it, rather than what they could bring to it, well, when word came from the elders of Israel, hey, bring down the ark. Bring it out here into the battle. Stop and think for just a second. We're dealing with some serious scriptural violations. If you'd been a priest worth your salt, what you would have said is, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We set things up in such a way that unless the Lord Himself says we're moving this tabernacle, the tabernacle is to be separate. It is only to be approached one day a year on the Day of Atonement. It is not to be moved. Scripture is real explicit about that. But hey, you know, uh, we're getting this call. You know, it's from the elders of Israel. And boy, you know, we've just had this battle. And yeah, that ark is pretty powerful stuff. And just think, Hophni, we pull this one off. And man, the Lord gives us this big victory in this battle. You know, I bet there's going to be a little bit of something in the offering for us. And so instead of standing for the Scriptures, these false shepherds stood for their own benefit, their own good, their own feathering of their nest. And so, the people didn't even have shepherds who could steer them back to the Lord. In John chapter 10, Jesus warned about such things. In John chapter 10, beginning at verse 11, listen to what Jesus said about the importance of having a good shepherd, one that will point you toward the Word of God in your life. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not a shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Hophni and Phinehas fit that category. They were in it for the almighty buck. They were in it for what they could get rather than what they could give. And so we see a lot of times people who fall away from the Lord. How many times have you heard people say something to this effect? Well, I used to be under so-and-so's ministry, but boy, you know, that guy really turned out to be a con man, so how can I believe any of it? When I hear that, you know, this question comes through my mind. Well, did pastor so-and-so or TV evangelist so-and-so die on the cross for your sins? Was he was the one who was resurrected from the dead? so that you can have eternal life? Hey, hey, hey. It's nice to be in a church and it's nice to be in a place where you're being fed. It's nice to be under a a teacher you can really relate to. But understand this, a good shepherd with a small S 
is always about the business of making sure your faith is in the Good Shepherd with a capital S in Jesus Christ. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will never be let down. You'll never be disappointed. You see, faith in anything but God Himself is a one-way ticket to falling away. Faith in a church, faith in a pastor, faith in a program, faith in even your own religious practices. None of those things will save and sustain you. It is only having that relationship with God that will keep you going. No wonder the Apostle Paul in his ministry made sure that people weren't looking at him, but rather the Lord. He would even hold back in terms of his ministry so that people wouldn't get the wrong idea about exactly who and what he was preaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, listen to what Paul said about his approach of ministry. He said this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words or of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's saying, look, I wanted to make sure that you didn't think I was starting the church of Paul. I wanted to make sure that your faith wasn't based on the fact that, well, you know, I've been taught by an apostle. No, the only faith that's worth having is faith in Jesus and He alone. Remember the big TV evangelist scandals of the 80s? Man, that was a devastating time for the church. And, and it's kind of funny to me, Jim Baker, who was a real focal point of that whole scandalous era, uh, you know, again, he just went through the ringer and, and, I mean, he didn't go down without a fight. On Nightline one night, he was protesting because Jerry Falwell, quote-unquote, was taking away my ministry. Well, there was his problem. He thought the ministry was his ministry. But God got a hold of this guy's life. In fact, he wrote a book after he got out of jail for defrauding people in the PTL scandal. And the title is just stunning. It's called, I Was Wrong. And he figured it out. He was wrong. He realized that people were putting their faith in, in both he and, and his wife and in their ministry and that there was only one person who wouldn't let them down. And you know, when that TV evangelist scandal broke, I was speaking a lot on college campuses at that time and I would have people ask me over and over again, why should I believe in your Jesus? Look at, the, look at Baker. Look at Swagger. Look at these other people. Why should I believe in Jesus when all I see is hypocrisy? And I would say, well, you know what? That's why I don't call you to follow Jim Baker or Jimmy Swagger. I don't even call you to follow me. I call you to follow Jesus Christ because He's no hypocrite. You don't want to fall away. Make sure your faith is in Jesus Christ because I want to tell you something. I've been saved since 1973. And during that time, I've gone through some ups and I've gone through some downs. But through it all, Jesus Christ has never once let me down. He's had different ideas about what was best for me at certain times than I would have chosen, but He is true to His promise. I will never leave you and never forsake you. And if your faith is in Christ, the Scripture says, the one who believes in Him will never be disappointed. 
If you're disappointed in your faith, <laughs> here's a little reality check for you. Maybe your faith was in someone or something less than Jesus Christ. The people of Israel needed to learn that lesson. And boy, they were going to learn that lesson the hard way. They thought that by bringing the ark into battle, they would have it down wired. But look what was about to happen to them. 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 5 says, And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now, now here you see that bringing the ark up from Shiloh to Ebenezer to the battle lines was, from a human point of view, a great move. It was an incredible morale booster. Because when the people, the, the disheartened and defeated troops of Israel, saw the ark coming into the camp, they got on an emotional high. They started stomping and yelling and raising such a ruckus that the Philistines nearby thought the earth was shaking. Have you ever been in a worship setting like that? Ever been in a situation where people gathering together around the things of God really got hyped up emotionally? I mean, so much that it was just kind of overwhelming because everyone was so into it. Hey, those are wonderful times. Don't get me wrong. Those mountaintop experiences that we encounter, maybe at a retreat, Maybe at a conference that you've gone to where you just really focus in on the Lord. Beautiful, beautiful times. And you know, there's just nothing like being around a group of people that are just united in one purpose. To worship God. And they're doing so with all of their might. And they are so excited about the things of God. But you know what? There's a very important thing that we've got to discern here. Just because there was an emotional response in the camp doesn't necessarily mean that there was a spiritual response going on in the camp. Very big difference. Hey, the people were hooting and hollering, and I'm sure if you'd stood around there, you know, they'd go, well, what are they excited about? They're excited about this object that represents God. Surely this is a spiritual experience. But you know what? The flesh can very easily mimic the Spirit. And one of the ways it mimics the Spirit is by getting people addicted to Holy Ghost goosebumps and spirit shivers and being at that place where the tears are flowing and people are, are holding hands and swaying back and forth and singing praise songs together and you're having this overwhelming emotional release. But is anything really happening in your heart spiritually? That's always the question to ask. How can you tell the difference between just an emotionally hyped up time and a true work of God's Holy Spirit? You know, it's a very important question to ask because in our day and age, we're seeing more and more emotionalism being passed off as a work of the Spirit. I mean, people will say things like, well, it felt so good. And I felt so close to God when we were all walking around quacking like ducks. Therefore, it must be of God. And they tend to buy into the gospel according to Debbie Boone. You remember her hit song, You Light Up My Life. There's that awful line at the very end. It just made me cringe every time I heard it. Because I saw so many people's lives wrecked by this philosophy. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. <laughs> Wrong. 
Man, so many people have been devastated and destroyed by that. So many people have been brought into cults that way. Consider the appeal of the Mormon church. When a Mormon asks you to consider the truth of the Book of Mormon, they don't ask you to sit down and evaluate whether it's historically accurate, whether it's doctrinally consistent, whether its prophecies can be verified as being fulfilled. You know what they ask you to do? They say, pray about it and see how you feel. As the burning of the bosom. And that will show you that this is really true. Honest to goodness, that's what they say. And so you're supposed to read it. And if you have this weird, ooky, spooky feeling inside of you, then you've got a testimony and you've got a witness that this is the real deal. Well, when people say that to me, I always say to them, well, how do you know you just didn't have a bad taco for lunch? Big question. How do you discern the difference between hyped emotions and the true work of the Holy Spirit? There's only one way. There's only one way. Because ultimately, a true work of God's Spirit is going to have a lasting impact upon our lives. It's not going to be just a false and fleeting kind of thing. Consider what Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 16. He said this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give you. Now, a very crucial thing to understand. If something has truly been a move of God's Spirit and you've been a part of it, you're going to be different from then on out. Different in a positive way. Different in a more Christ-like way than you've ever been before. It's going to be a lasting thing. It's not just going to be this high that just goes away as soon as you leave. When I was in youth ministry, I mean, it was a phenomena that I would see especially for kids that had grown up going to youth camps. I would see some of these church kids especially sort of gear their whole spiritual lives around the one-week trip that we would have to this place called Hume Lake every year. And at Hume Lake, I mean, everybody's a Christian and everybody loves God and everybody is so nice and good-looking and, and, you know, everybody is just having a terrific time and, boy, for a week they are on fire and at the end, you know, they, they always have the big you know, commitment night, you know, the bonfire things where people will dedicate their life to the Lord or go up to the microphone and say, yeah, I came up here and I was really messed up, but man, I'm going to live for the Lord forever now. And everyone's like, yeah, you know, and it's just a big emotional thing. Or people write their sins that they were involved with and they, they wrap a piece of paper on a pine cone with their sin written on it and they throw it in the fire and that's it, you know. And, and I mean, it was just this big, intense high. But, you know, there was a funny thing about Hume Lake. Down the mountain from where Hume Lake was, was the, the San Joaquin Valley. And when you would get down the mountain and you would leave behind the pine trees, inevitably the tin can bus without shock absorbers or air conditioning that we always drove up there would stop in a place called Dinuba. And when you got to Dinuba, at the Circle K in Dinuba, you suddenly realize, I'm not at Hume Lake anymore. I'm down the mountain. And it was just amazing. It was like an on-off switch for these kids. They would have their big high, but as soon as they would get down, or as soon as they would go back to their friends or to their families, boom! Anything significant that had happened in their life was just washed away. Now, don't get me wrong. There were people's lives who were changed 
at Hume Lake Christian Camp. But not everybody's life was. Because some people were really looking to be touched by the Spirit. Some people, even in spite of themselves, were touched by the Spirit. But some people just settled for emotion. And that's exactly what happened to the people of Israel here. How do I know that this was just an emotional upheaval and not a spiritual one? Well, look at what comes about as a result of this huge million-man rally. I don't know if it was a million men, but they really had a great rallying time there. Look at verse 6. Now, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for never, such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. Now, look what happens here. The Hebrews go nuts over the ark coming in. They think, yeah, we got a whoop. And the Philistines hear this and they are paralyzed with fear. Well, you know what happens when fear hits you? It's called the fight or flight reaction. You're going to do one thing or the other because your body gets supercharged with adrenaline. You're ready to go. You've got to do something. You're going to jump out of your skin. Well, it would have been wonderful if the Philistines had chosen flight. But they put two and two together. I mean, look at the logic that's involved here. Do you want those guys to beat us and then they'll treat us like we've been treating them? No way, Jose. (laughs) Talk about turning the golden rule on its ear. And so they looked at each other and said, man, let's just take all this adrenaline, all this fear, and let's go down fighting, guys. Let's die with our boots on. And so what was intended to be a defeating aspect of the battle ends up being an energizing aspect of the battle. And and here's something else you've got to understand. If emotions are ruling the day, then the most emotional person rules. I mean, you ever wonder how churches really get off into this kind of weirdness stuff? If the Word of God is no longer the standard, if we're not basing what we do on Scripture but on feelings, well, then the person who feels the most is the most spiritual, right? And so you just got to keep upping the ante and you've got to show people that you are more over the top than somebody else and suddenly quacking like ducks is starting to make a lot of sense. The Philistines out-emotionalized the Hebrews. And look what happened as a result. Verses 10 and 11, So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. You may want to underline that phrase. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What a complete and total disaster. But notice what the key was to the battle. When the going got tough, every man fled to his own tent. Now understand this. If emotions are all that bind you together with a body of believers. If your feelings are all that keeps you solidified in your walk with Jesus Christ, then I guarantee you something. Your commitment to fellowship, even your commitment to walk with Jesus Christ, 
will only last as long as you can keep the feelings going. And here's a newsflash for you. Our feelings change every day. <laughs> if you're like me, your feelings probably change about 8 or 10 or 12 times a day based on circumstances, right? You know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should all be like Mr. Spock for Jesus, that, that, that having feelings is a bad thing. But you'll probably hear this a lot around here if you hang out here for any length of time. In the Christian life especially, and really across the board in any relationship you want to name, please understand this. Emotions are excellent servants, but poor masters. If you're a Christian just because it makes you feel good, what happens when you feel bad? If you're in a relationship just because so-and-so makes you feel like I've never felt before, like all the songs say, what happens when that feeling fades? Everyone to his own tent. And that's why Israel was routed. There was no cohesion. There was no stick to There was no persevering. There was no overcoming. And here's the second way I think that people really fall away in the Christian life. Not just because they put their faith in something or someone less than God, but because instead of basing their faith on the fact of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they base their faith on feelings. In fact, they confuse faith with feelings. To them, faith is a feeling. And so when the feelings leave, so does faith. It shouldn't be that way. In fact, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you really want to see the kind of faith that God wants you to have, the kind of faith that's going to allow you to persevere and overcome, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 16, the Apostle Paul talks about a very different kind of faith than a lot of the emotionalism that passes for faith in our day. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Hey, your hope of heaven has to be based on more than just how you feel. Or you won't make it. I guarantee you, you will be an ex-Christian someday. Your confidence in the Christian life has to have more substance behind this, please hear me, than just an experience you had where your spine tingled or, you know, you kind of had some tears running down your face or everybody else around you seemed like they were having a great time, so you entered in as well. What is the foundation that will never fail you? Again, it is understanding the fact of God's love demonstrated to us in no uncertain terms by the life death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that is not a hardcore historical fact, if that is not in your understanding a settled issue, then you're going to be up and down and here and there and you're going to be a prime candidate for falling away. 
because nobody can keep their emotions on a high forever. It just doesn't work that way. So very important for us to understand, not only we need to have our faith in the right places, but we also need to understand what faith is. It's more than a feeling. It is confidence in the trustworthiness of God demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what faith is all about. When you don't have that faith, boy, let me tell you something. Not only do you see these awful results, this this routing, this falling apart of the armies of Israel and, and this incredible defeat, but when you have that kind of shaky faith and something rotten like this happens, man, let me tell you something. You really find out during these hard times what you're really made of. And that's what we see beginning at verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 4. Notice it says, Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. And I testify, I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there's been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas are dead and the ark of God has been captured. Now, I think it's kind of an interesting thing, this is just sort of an aside, that when the news came of this disastrous battle, the capture of the ark, the death of the two head honcho priests in Israel, the Eli was literally the last one to know in that town. Everybody else knew. Everybody else was throwing a hissy fit about it. I mean, Eli hears everybody else rioting over something and getting into this huge controversy. And finally, this guy comes to him and tells him the news. Well, there's a couple of different takes, I guess, on why Eli was told last. Maybe this messenger was saving the worst for last because he realized that Eli would probably take it heaviest. I mean, after all, he's lost his son. Or maybe it's just because Eli was so out of touch with where the regular people were it was almost an afterthought even to tell him, like he'd care. Remember something about Eli that we discovered. He was a guy who tended to, well, preach first and ask questions later. Remember the story of Hannah being there in the tabernacle, praying before the Lord, so overcome with her grief that she couldn't even express her prayers out loud? Remember what Eli did when he saw her? He gave her the old temperance sermon. You drunk! Put away your bottle, you worthless woman! I mean, talk about jumping to conclusions. And when Hannah explained, no, I'm not a drunk. I was pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me that way. He goes, oh, well, the Lord be with you and grant your request. Slap a little cliche on you, get you on your way. Eli had fallen down on the job. Eli had become so enamored of his position, he forgot that his position was one of service to people, not vice versa. And maybe that's why he heard last. Because people didn't even really think, how much could he care? All the Scriptures say that that shouldn't be true of us. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we are told that the role of a shepherd of God's people is not to lord it over the flock, but be an example to the people of God. 
How can you be an example if you're out of touch? If you're inaccessible, if, if you're just not around? Hey, half of ministry is rubbing off on other people. You want to have an effective ministry? You want to have a, a positive impact in the lives of people? Be around people. Eli, I think, was so isolated that even when this happened, he was the last one to hear it. And look what happens when he hears the news. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backwards by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he judged Israel 40 years. In other words, here's Eli. He's probably kicking back in the chair there at the city gate and this messenger comes in and he goes, what, what's everybody yelling about? I mean, obviously he had cataracts. His eyes were dim. He was blinded for some reason. I mean, the causes could have been many. But the point of the matter was he was sitting there in his usual customary place and notice what caused him to keel over. Was it hearing that his sons died? Was it hearing that his own flesh and blood had passed away? No, it says when he heard about the ark. Now that tells me something about Eli. It tells me that he fell victim to that phenomenon. Maybe you've heard it before. The doctor's kids are always the sickest on the block. You know, the carpenter's house is always the one that's falling apart. Now there's a tendency among those of us who get involved with ministry sometimes that our own families are the least ministered to. That shouldn't happen. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1, over and over again, the Scripture emphasizes that a qualification for being involved in ministry on any level is that you've got to take care of business in your own home. You've got to take care of business at home. As Howard Hendricks, a great humorous speaker out of Dallas Theological Seminary once put it, if it doesn't work at home, don't export it. If your own family isn't ultimately blessed because you're a Christian, then let's get things together with the family and then you can get involved with something else. Ministry shouldn't be a dodge or an escape from taking care of business at home. And for Eli, unfortunately, it was. But notice something else that's revealed about what's going on here. Verse 19, Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you've borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God had been captured. Now, this gives you a little insight into what it was like to be Phineas's wife. Could have been a picnic. Remember something, Hophni and Phineas were noted as sexually abusing the women who came and volunteered in the tabernacle area. As a wife in that time, with very little recourse involved, all this woman was basically given the option of doing was turning the other way and learning to live with it. Notice something. What caused her the most grief? Was it the death of her father-in-law? Was it the death of her own husband? No. She named her kid Ichabod. How'd you like to have that name, Ichabod? I mean, even in English, that doesn't sound like a great name, does it? In Hebrew, it's even worse. It means no glory. How'd you like to go through life like that? Junior high must have been sweet for that kid. <laughs> Is no glory here? <laughs> yeah, that's me. I'm right here in the back. 
Why did she call that kid no glory? Well, it wasn't because her glorious husband had passed away or her glorious father-in-law had been such a spiritual mentor to her had passed away. It was because the ark had been captured. And you know what? I think this woman had been discipled very, very well because like her husband and like her father-in-law and like most of the people in Israel at this time, she preferred religion to relationship. If you want to fall away from the Lord, let me tell you something. That's a great way to go. Get all caught up in religion. Get caught up in what you do for God rather than what God has done for you. Get caught up in, in religious objects and activities and, and looking right and, and having the right kind of bumper stickers on the back of your car. Substitute that for a real heart relationship with God. And you know, that will lead you into the worst kind of falling away of all. You will fall away and you won't even know you've fallen away because you will be just as religious, just as proudly pious as you've always been. And that is dangerous stuff. This woman mourned the loss of her religious object but could not find it in her heart to mourn the loss of people. And when programs and positions and our religious practices become more important to us than people, you've fallen away, whether you realize it or not. How can we keep this from happening to us? What is the cure for falling away? Falling away? Well, this was an issue that Jesus Himself had to deal with. Because there were people in Jesus' time who thought that they were right there and right on with God who could not have been farther from the Lord if they tried. It was the people who were running the temple in Jesus' day. And in the book of Mark, chapter 11, there's a very interesting encounter described toward the end of Jesus' ministry. After Jesus had entered Jerusalem in a time known as the triumphal entry, in Mark, chapter 11, and verse 15, we read, So they came to Jerusalem... Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And He would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then He taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy Him, for they feared Him. Because all the people were astonished at his teaching. His teaching, two lines, astonished the people. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Do you realize that last line, you have made it a den of thieves, is an Old Testament quote? It's an Old Testament quote from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7. In Jeremiah, chapter 7, a very interesting thing was going on in Israel. In Jeremiah 7, Israel is on the verge of being conquered by the Babylonians. They have so turned their back on God and so turned away from the Lord and so become immersed in idolatry. God is going to send them to Babylon for 70 years. And He gave Jeremiah the mission of saying to Israel, Give up. You're going. <laughs> Popular message to share. But that wasn't going to be even the hardest message Jeremiah had to share. Listen to what God called him to do in Jeremiah chapter 7. 
the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings. I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your own hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I have seen it, says the Lord. Understand this. When Jesus said, you have made this house into a den of thieves, the people at that time knew what he was talking about. And they knew the context of this statement. The people of Israel in Jeremiah's time were saying, God won't judge us. Why? Because we got the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord is here. God wouldn't dare let this temple be conquered and trampled down. It's too holy. It's too special. Therefore, we can get away with murder because the temple of the Lord's right here. And God's saying, I've seen your hearts. I've seen how far you are from me. Don't think that this temple is your security blanket because it will not last. That's the reference Jesus was pointing back to. How interesting then that Jeremiah is now led by the Holy Spirit to give them an illustration of how dangerous the ground they were standing on really was. Verse 12, But go now to my place which was in Shiloh. First Samuel chapter 4. The account we've just read. Where I set my name at first. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you've done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you and you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and this place which I gave to you and your fathers as I have done to Shiloh. Shiloh was destroyed by the Philistines after the ark was captured. What Jesus was saying to His people was, you're putting your trust in this temple and you love having the temple, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. You've made the same mistake. You've rejected the God who makes the temple holy and you've made the temple your God. If you want to keep from falling away, one thing you've got to keep straight. Who you worship and why. Jesus was laying that out to His people. Jeremiah laid it out to His people. If the people of Israel listened, I'm sure Samuel would have told them the same thing. Don't think the ark will deliver. Don't think the temple will deliver. Don't think your church membership will deliver. Don't think that your Christian bumper sticker will deliver. Don't think that the fact that you have a quiet time every day will deliver. It's only a relationship with God that will deliver. 
Do you have that? Is it real? Is it growing? Have you settled for nothing else and nothing less than a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you do this, you will never fall away. If you do anything else, I guarantee you, you will. Let's pray. Father, such heavy things. But your word is not kid stuff, Lord. It gets through to the heart. And I pray right now that you'd be searching the hearts of people. Just like you're searching my heart. How you've shown me how oftentimes it is so easy to get our eyes on things that really don't matter. When, Lord, you've called us just to know the simplicity and the goodness of a relationship with you. Lord, let us not substitute the approval of men for the approval that comes from you. Let us not substitute involvement in a church for the infilling of your Holy Spirit. Let us not substitute, Lord, our reputations in the eyes of men for the righteousness that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ and in His finished work on our behalf. Lord, we confess before You that our works are as filthy rags in Your sight. But we thank You that Your finished work is sufficient to save to the uttermost all who come to You in faith. Lord, we've put our faith in idols before and we've been utterly let down. Help us now to be wise enough just to turn to You in this moment just to say, Yes, Lord. I want You to be my all in all. I want You to be my Lord. You are my faith and my trust and my hope. See me through. Strengthen me. Get me home safe, Lord. Only to the cross of Christ can we claim a safety because You have made that real. You have made that powerful. You have made it effective. No other thing can we bring only to the cross of Christ must we claim. And if there are other things that we've been leaning on, show us, Lord. And let us know the joy of setting those things aside so that you may fill us and overflow us and do for us what our own works could never do. Make us right with you. Bring us peace with you. Give us a durable and abiding faith. Thank you that you stand willing to do that. Let us just reach out and receive right now. Right now in this moment. Just reach out and receive. Freely and without cost. Come to the waters. Come to the Lord. He will satisfy. Thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.